0: If you have your bibles with you go ahead and open them up to john chapter 11 we'll be looking at verses 28 through 37 i'll uh, read this passage then we'll pray together and take a look to see what the lord would show us this morning and when she had said this she went and called her sister mary saying in private the teacher is here and is calling for you and when she heard it She rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her, Mary, in the house, consoling her, saw that Mary rose quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Let's pray. O oh Lord, you in your gracious, loving kindness and mercy have come down and become like us, taking on the form of man, living in experiencing everything that we experience and willingly giving yourself up on the cross so that we might taste and know eternal life. Lord, thank you that you are the resurrection and the life. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving us the hope and the promise that though we should die, we will yet live again. Lord, thank you, Father, that you would call us to yourself, calling us to Jesus, our Savior. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you would would work within us, that you would take up residence within us and dwell inside of us, tabernacling with us in our own flesh, transforming our hearts and drawing us deeper into you, into your richness and your truth. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, Father, we pray that as we look at these words this morning, that you have given to John for our good, that you would open up our eyes, you would open up our hearts, and we would hear what it is we're supposed to understand this morning about you and about ourselves. And Lord, that we would give ourselves to whatever it is you're calling us to. And we ask it, Father, in Jesus' holy name. Amen. All right, so this passage starts out with kind of a sense of urgency. It ends, you know, in verse 27 with Martha talking with Jesus. And then after she makes her confession about Him being the Christ, the Son of God, she then runs to go see Mary and get Mary to come quickly to see Jesus. But why this urgency? Why did Mary rise quickly and go to Jesus? I mean, she seemed okay staying at the house with the other mourners. Well, it seems to me that both her eagerness to see Jesus after summoning him from the other side of the Jordan River, as well as her desire to to see him and hope for something from the Lord. Yet there was more than Just hoping for something. Notice what led to Martha sending for Mary. It was after Martha's confession of Jesus as the Christ. Now she was ready to hurriedly call for Mary. Before that, Martha needed to talk to Jesus. Martha needed to hear what Jesus would say to her. Before she was going to have Mary come join her. Martha now has an element of expectation after her interaction with Jesus. Because she met Jesus outside the village, probably under a tree, because she met with him there in this lamenting moment, she now has an expectation of Jesus doing something. That's the motivation for Mary, Martha sending for Mary, And wanting her to come quickly. And Mary herself now comes to Jesus. But in doing so, she brings this crowd with her, this whole group of people that were at her house. Now Jesus' cover is blown. right? Jesus has come to the village of Bethany, but he didn't go into the village. He's hanging on the outside because he's trying not to create a spectacle and draw attention to himself as he goes there because of the closeness to Jerusalem and the problem with the Jews and the Jerusalem leaders. But now with Mary bringing a crowd out to see Jesus, his cover is blown. He had been able to avoid a crowd knowing he was in Bethany. But now not only is there a crowd seeing him, people from the city of Jerusalem is seeing him. From this moment forward, everything Jesus says and does will be told about him in Jerusalem. And the Pharisees and the rulers will know about it. The ones who were trying to kill him just a few weeks earlier, they're going to know what he says and does in the village of Bethany. And gossip has always spread faster even before social media came along. The buzz, there are people in this crowd who just can't wait to run back to Jerusalem and tell them tell these religious leaders that Jesus is there and this is what he said but before they get a chance to do that Mary has her own lament that she has to give to Jesus let Mary like her sister Martha laments that Jesus was not there to save Lazarus but notice the differences in Martha and Mary's Laments to Jesus. Both lament that if Jesus had been there, they know Lazarus would have been saved. Yet Mary does not express the confidence and faith in Christ that her sister did. She just simply laments. Remember, Martha said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Mary doesn't have that expression. Mary just says, oh, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Mary does not express this confidence and faith in Christ. She just laments to Jesus. But that raises an important question. We've already talked about how Lazarus dies very shortly after the messengers were sent from Bethany to go find Jesus and bring him back, that before they even got to find Jesus, that Lazarus was already dead. But Mary and Martha both expressed this idea that Jesus, if he had been here, if he had been there in Bethany at their house, Lazarus would not have died. Did Jesus have to be there to save Lazarus? Did he really have to show up and physically touch Lazarus? Then both sisters expressed this idea that Jesus has to be, that he has to be physically present to administer healing power. Yesterday, Amy asked me, didn't they, Mary and Martha, didn't they know about Jesus healing others from a distance? Right? The Syrophoenician woman in tear who came and asked Jesus to heal her demon-possessed daughter, And then the centurion who sent and said, asked Jesus to heal his servant. And then Jesus started going there and he sent back and said, no, you don't need to. I'm a man under authority. Just say the word and I know it will happen. And Jesus did so and his servant was healed. Both were accomplished without Jesus being physically present. Didn't Mary and Martha know that? Well, here's the catch. The distance healings that Jesus did were always with Gentiles. Whenever he healed somebody at a distance without physically going there to touch them, this was a Gentile. When Jesus healed Jewish persons, he was physically present. Even if Mary and Martha knew about those healings, in their minds, they were anomalies. That's what you do for the Gentiles is you heal them at a distance. But Jews, your people, they get your physical presence with them for their healing. In fact, often Jesus heals by actually touching the person. Not always, but often. Now, there's lots of reasons as to why Jesus would physically touch in that culture. One being that the idea that the sick person was unclean And Jesus is touching this unclean person. But his touch doesn't just heal them, it makes them clean. Nonetheless, regardless of all those extra pieces, the reality is is that if you were a Jewish person in Jesus' day, watching him and listening to him, you expect him to physically show up and touch you to be healed. So in Mary and Martha's mind, Jesus is going to come and touch Lazarus or it's not going to work at all. That's why they think Jesus had to be there. But as we often see, Jesus has other ideas. He's busting their stereotypes. He's breaking up their traditions of how things have to be for it to work. A lesson that his people are still trying to learn today. So what about this stuff of Jesus being deeply moved and him weeping? What was it Jesus was deeply moved about in his personal soul and heart? When it says that he was moved, deeply moved in his spirit, it's referring to his human nature, spirit, and, and heart, mind, and soul, not the Holy Spirit. So what was it about his own personal soul and heart that was moved in this moment? And what caused it to happen? Why was he not moved when he's standing outside the village talking to Mary and Martha? But he is moved, standing in front of the tomb, seeing all the weeping and the grieving. Well, it seems to be that it was the sorrow and agony caused by death the bitterness of soul that was being expressed by the grieving of Mary and Martha and the Jews that were with them moved his heart. It was also his own understanding of this is not how we designed it. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Jesus understood the original intent he and the Father had for life at creation. How the necessity... Of death because of the fall of humanity was a consequence. Not their hope and aspiration for humanity. He felt everything in his humanity that we feel along with all the understanding of the original intent he and the Father had for humanity. He understood this and there he is experiencing grief in the way that humans feel it and experience it. And he was moved. Remember, he loved Lazarus and Mary and Martha. He feels the hurt and has the sympathy and empathy of what they're feeling as well. On the surface, it just looks like Jesus is doing Jesus stuff. But the deeper, richer reality in between the the words and the lines on the pages of this of your Bible, is that Jesus was deeply loving in this moment. And he was feeling all of that. And sometimes that's difficult for us to deal with. Are we okay with a Jesus that really feels what he feels? Are we supposed to feel? Is it okay for us to feel stuff? I mean, Jesus wept. So it must be okay to cry must be okay to express the grief within our souls when it occurs. Because Jesus didn't seem to have a problem doing it. I remember one time hearing that tears are God's way of cleansing our soul. And that when you fight the tears, you're fighting the very thing that will cleanse your soul. Now, of course, I don't mean that somehow our own tears wash away our sins. Of course, that's not at all what I mean. Scripture is very clear. The word of God himself, his own word says that it is the blood of Jesus that washes away our sins. I think what the person's expressing those words meant was that in the tears, when we express this deep emotion that has to come out, it has to come out some way or another. And tears are God's designed purpose and way for the anguish and grief in our souls to come out. I guess you could say when we fight the tears, we're fighting God in a sense because we're fighting what he's given us to express the, the anguish we feel. And Jesus seems perfectly okay doing just that. I also believe that Jesus had some sort of life moment here. Not so much as the son of God, but as a human like us. And and what I mean by that is Jesus sees the real purpose of his mission more clearly that Lazarus death. The anguish of everything that Mary and Martha feel and their grief that they're expressing and his his compassion and love for them and his love for Lazarus. And now, you know, Lazarus is dead. The consequence of death and all the all the stuff that death brings and he recognizes that he's really here to conquer death by paying the price for human sin. Now, I of course, he understood that before this moment, but it's but there's this sense that it was, this was a this was a, a watershed moment. A sense of this is the reason I am conquering death and human sin to put an end to this kind of of grieving and this kind of of sorrow and anguish and everything that leads to the consequences of death i believe that he just became more resolute about his purpose and mission as a result of this moment and all the destruction and anguish that death brings because jesus ain't about death jesus is about life life everlasting Jesus wants more for us than the hollow lies of the prosperity Jesus. Our best life now is not about money in our pockets. It's about the fullness of our own personhood. Knowing him and his joy in our hearts and in our souls and our mind and our bodies even. Knowing him in this kind of fullness in this life as well as in the next. That's what he really wants for us. And that is really our best life. Everything that comes from the richness and the fullness of knowing him and our whole personhood right here and now. So why did Jesus weep? He wept because someone he loved experienced death. He wept because those whom he loved experienced and were still experiencing the anguish of loss. He wept because he loved. And this is an uncomfortable reality for all of us. If you love, you will weep. Unfortunately, in this world, I can't explain it all. I can't explain why, but weeping and love are tied together. Of course, joy, delight, happiness, all of those things are tied to love. But for something, you know, again, for reasons I don't understand exactly. Sorrow and hurt come with love. If you love someone, sooner or later, they will cause hurt and weeping sometimes intentionally and sometimes not. It's, you can't experience the joys of love without also taking the hurts and the tears of love. And I just don't think it's a cute little narrative piece here that John puts in. John wants us to grasp, Jesus understands the hurt that comes with loving. He understands sooner or later the person you love will generate tears either because they've done something or if nothing else from the death of their physical body will bring tears. That anguish and grief of loss from death and someone you love. Look, I don't really cry over someone I've never met dying. I may have Grieving and weeping because of the, the general evil attached to it or because of the grief I see in other people. But I only weep for those that I love when they pass. And Jesus knows what that's like. That's John's point or one of his points. Jesus knows what it's like to weep. Because someone you love has experienced death. Jesus wept because Jesus loved. And I don't know about you, but that's a great comfort to me. It's a great comfort that my Savior, who calls me to himself, knows the grief and anguish of loss. Unfortunately, Jesus' is weeping for him doesn't bring any real relief from his detractors and his enemies. There's just no peace for Jesus. Jesus can't get a moment's peace from these people. The man is weeping openly in public at the pain and sorrow of death and these fools are still throwing stones at him. Really? Are you kidding me? Can't you let the man grieve like anybody else? You have to throw verbal stones at him while he's weeping with these women? Even in sorrow and grief, Jesus' authority and messiahship is challenged by these fools. I mean, you can just hear the naysayers in the crowd. You can imagine how this conversation went. Well, if Jesus was really the Messiah, if he was really a great prophet, he would have saved this man he loved so much. These are the, these are the kind of fools who will say anything. I'll bet they even said something like this. I bet he didn't save Lazarus on purpose so it'd be easier to get Mary and Martha to give him their money. They literally have no limit to the insults and accusations they can lob at Jesus. But what they don't know, what they don't realize is the eggs they are throwing at Jesus are about to be the eggs that end up on their face. Because while they're lobbing these accusations at Jesus, Jesus is stirring the resurrection power within him. While they're saying things like, well, he could open the eyes of the blind, but he couldn't keep this man from dying. He's getting ready to call Lazarus out of the grave. They think, I don't know what they think. but What they're about to experience is going to turn their world upside down. And they're going to have to come face to face with a reality. This Jesus whom they were maligning because he didn't keep Lazarus alive. Just raised him from the dead. And we'll get into that next week. And this is a mistake that the enemies of Jesus have made throughout the centuries. They think because he is not acting in a way that they think a king of the universe should act, that somehow they have the upper hand. Even in this moment of human history and culture and society and and politics and world events, the enemies of Jesus think they have the upper hand. But they don't. What they don't realize is is the hand that they think is on top is about to become the hand that gets chopped off. The book of Revelation makes it clear what happens to the enemies of Jesus. Which then raises the question, if the book of Revelation makes clear what happens to the enemies of Jesus, why do people make themselves His enemy? Because they don't believe He is who he says he is. They don't trust that he means what he says. And before we become too indignant at the enemies of Jesus, we remember how close we are sometimes to acting the same way. To not be so sure he's who he says he is. Or to not trust that he means what he says. On those moments when I'm willing to look in the mirror, I sometimes discover I'm more like those people I malign and say are his enemies than I really am very comfortable admitting and being real about. And there's a reason that phrase exists, he who lives in a glass house should not cast stones. Sometimes I feel like everything's a glass house, like even the bathroom. Especially when you've spent five days with a three-year-old, a two-year-old, and a one-year-old. Privacy is an absolute illusion with small children. They're also really good at exposing you. You think, you know, as an adult, we've got things covered up, and people can't see it, and they don't really know. Well, I guess them small children got X-ray vision because they see it and call it right. And of course, in, the, in what makes it so difficult is their innocence, right? There, I mean, it would be it would be easier if they were indignant like the self righteous person. No, they're just like, why do you have the angry look, Granddaddy? <laughs> I guess because I'm angry. (laughs) And then, why are you angry? (laughs) Because I'm not getting what I want. That's why I'm angry. I'm not getting what I want. So what? I mean, you know, we all got to go home and pay the bills this afternoon. So what? Do you have an element of expectation after your interactions with our Lord Jesus? Martha had an interaction with Jesus. That resulted in her having expectations of something he was going to do. She may not have had the correct expectation, but she had an expectation he's going to do something. Do you have that expectation after you have spent time with Jesus? That he's going to do something. Of course, I don't mean an expectation that's, you know, an attitude of entitlement, like he owes you something. But that expectation of hopefulness, the expectation that he just might actually do something. The other thing I would say is, fortunately for us, Jesus does not need to be present to heal us of our broken spirits and bodies. He can heal from afar. Yet, even still, and he is ever present with us, for he promised he would be. I will never leave you or forsake you. Hebrews thirteen five. While Jesus is in heaven and we are here, and it feels like he's afar, he's actually right here with us. Even in our brokenness, even when we grieve and lament at the loss of someone, or grieve and lament at the brokenness within our own bodies, He is forever present with us and can heal both far and near. And as I've said before, Jesus knows our sorrows and grief. He cares for us even when we can't see it or feel it. To me, I believe this is actually the greatest test of faith and trust we can face. Does he care for me when it does not look like he does? This all feels like he's not caring for me or loving me, but I believe he does. I trust him that somewhere on the other side of all this, I will see it and understand it and realize just how much he loves and cares for me. We touched on this earlier in the Bible study hour. There are times when it just seems like evil is winning and it's winning against us individually and personally. But the problem is, is we can't see it from his side of eternity. Sometimes the things that go badly around us are not so much that we were in the wrong place at the wrong time, but from his perspective and from his divine purposes, we are exactly in the right place at the right time. We talked about Corey Tinboom, how she and her sister Betsy were in the Ravenswood concentration camp during World War II. She was a clear victim of evil, and there were terrible evil taking place all around her. And it looks like God has abandoned her and doesn't love her enough to keep her out of the concentration camp. I mean, she was actually doing good things. She and her whole family were protecting Jews from the Nazi persecution in Denmark. And yet God lets her go to the concentration camp anyway. He doesn't stop it. He didn't stop it because Corey and Betsy were chosen by him for a purpose. He sent them into the midst of that evil to be his voice and his light. There's no telling how many women in Ravenswood came to faith in Christ because Corey and Betsy were there speaking the hope of Christ in the midst of that horrid evil place. Now, I doubt the Lord's going to be sending many of us, maybe any of us, to a concentration camp or something like it. I mean, I'm kind of hoping He doesn't. I mean, I really would prefer not to, right? Yeah, don't send me. <laughs> However, unpleasant circumstances and so unpleasant events occur around us. All of us. Nobody gets away from not having an unpleasant event. And the reality is, is one of the reasons we're experiencing that is because He chose us to be His light in the midst of that darkness. And what looks like God not loving us turns out from the eternal heavenly perspective as a great honor because He chose us to be his representatives in that moment. Heaven sees it as something amazing, something glorious, while we often just see it for the terrible yuck that we're experiencing. Look, and I'm not... Oh, I mean, good Lord. you. I know. I know how hard it is to have a heavenly eternal perspective when bad things are happening and you 're living through bad stuff, okay i'm not 'm not pointing out as someone who 's done well at that i 'm pointing it out as someone who's done poorly at it, and it was by his grace and mercy that I even understand this much. Of what it means to, to, to go through difficult circumstances and difficult events. I mean, it's almost hypocritical for me to even say anything. I mean, many of you know the, what, what this year has been like for me. And I'm just grateful that you can't see my private thoughts Monday through Saturday. actually, I'm grateful you can't see my private thoughts pretty much anytime, anywhere. But especially when it's unpleasant. The reality is, is I forget. I forget everything I've just told you in the midst of the dark places. Sometimes by his grace, the Holy Spirit reminds me. But usually it's one of you. You realize that's not the way this is supposed to work, right? The people you pastor are not supposed to be the one teaching you the things you're supposed to know. You're supposed to be teaching them. And instead, you guys end up helping me see things correctly. there are unpleasant days in front of most of us and in those unpleasant days i just implore you to cling to this reality jesus loves you and he chose you for this moment let's pray lord thank you for thank you for your word Thank you for what you've given us. Thank you for what you're going to give us. Thank you for everything that comes with the richness of knowing you, whether things are good or not. In Jesus' holy name, amen.